Ian Rowe has run schools in the Bronx for several years. He has got all sorts of ideas about how to encourage young Americans to think of themselves as individuals, not as victims, not as part of a collective. And he's joining me here today to talk about some of these things. Ian, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Now, Ian, um, I understand that, like me, you were you're born in London, and like me, you're a, a, an immigrant to America. Yes, you know my my parents, uh, who were from Jamaica, West Indies, uh, had their own dreams. My dad was a uh, studied um, uh, engineering, was good at at uh, maths um, when he was growing up, and uh, went to England to get his final formal schooling because Jamaica was still an English Commonwealth at the time. So he went over there and the, he had started courting my mom. You know, they went on um, horseback rides uh, for dates uh, in Jamaica, which was quite lovely. And then when he got to England, he wrote for her hand in marriage. He wrote a letter uh, back to her parents in Jamaica. And after much consternation, uh, they, they allowed her to take a 5,000 mile, uh, um, uh, you know, she got on an ocean liner all by herself. And they got married in England, had my brother, and then ultimately me. And then they came to the United States in search of the American dream. Wonderful. And, and, and they found it. I mean, you, you, do you remember arriving in America for the first time? I, I, can't, I don't remember. I do remember my first day of kindergarten. Um, uh, it's funny enough. Uh, but no, I mean, no, my parents came, you know, it's very interesting. They came, this was mid to late 1960s. So there was... There was a lot going on in the country. So there was the American dream. And then there was the daily news reports of what was happening in the streets throughout the country. And so there was a lot of racial strife. Um, but my parents had a sense that the country was changing and shifting and that opportunity still existed, even for an immigrant black family from Jamaica. So I remember those, um, I remember those days well in the sense of my, <laughs> when, I, when I did go to school. It was, you know, you go to school in the morning, come home, do your homework, have dinner with the family, go to bed, go to school in the morning, you know, uh, come home, do work. So my, my parents had a very um, uh, strong sense of what they wanted to have me exposed to. Frankly, my parents used to tell me they didn't like what they saw was happening with young black men. Um, and so they were very explicit about creating kind of a, a cocoon uh, around me with a big focus on our family, our faith, and education. Is that one of the reasons why you've gone on to run schools in, in New York? Do you feel very much sort of inspired by this, this idea that actually you, you, you need a focus on education, on good education to get a, a good start in life? Yeah, and this whole idea of choices. I mean, I'm, an, I'm a New York City uh, public school kid, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade, and I was very fortunate to go to a specialized high school in New York City, Brooklyn Tech. Um, you know, in that high school, I, I, they had, there were 14 different majors. So I majored in electrical engineering in high school for my last two years. And that put me on a path to then go to Cornell University where I majored in computer science engineering. And, and then, and during that, during the time after Cornell, when I was working at what was then Anderson Consulting, I was mentoring in New York City public schools. And frankly, the kids that I was mentoring, I thought far more talented than me, but by accident of zip code or maybe accident of family structure, 
they just weren't exposed to the same opportunities that I had. And there's no question that that has, that has animated my interest in just running schools to create a similar kind of opportunity for kids who otherwise, it would be a very difficult road to hold to, to, to achieve their path to success. So you decided to do something about it. Tell us a little bit about this. I mean, you've, you've run schools, you've not just run schools, you've, you've run them in the Bronx. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, the reason I run schools is that I want my students to know that they can do hard things, that there are pathways, even regardless of their current circumstance, that there are pathways for them to be successful. And in the heart of the South Bronx, you know, I ran a network of public charter schools for a full decade, and now I'm launching a new international baccalaureate high school, which actually is an extension of, a, of two charter schools. We're running a high school uh, for these two, uh, two charter schools. And in this district, only 7% of kids had started ninth grade uh, in the year 2015, four years later, graduated from high school ready for college. So just think about that for a moment, you know, 7%. That means 93% started ninth grade and either dropped out or they did earn their high school diploma, but uh, still could not do math nor reading at a college level if they did finish their high school program. And that's, you know, in the, that's in district seven and in district, um, uh, I'm sorry, that's in district 12 and district eight. It's only 2% of kids. I mean, the, these numbers are just so staggering and they've existed for generations. So I now, you know, trying to push back against this narrative, of, which basically says, if you're a kid, if you're a kid of color, if you're a kid in low income group, the system's rigged against you. I try to push back and say, you know, we need to build institutions that show that you don't have to be a victim based on these superficial characteristics, but that there are institutions that are crucial such as really good schools that can make a huge difference in creating these opportunities for kids. Do you think having this narrative pervasive all around you as a, as a young person growing up, it, it, it's demotivating? Do you think it sort of takes away this idea that you can, you can grow up to be what you want if you're-, you're I've, I've, I've seen it, it's debilitating and it, it comes from so many different places. I mean. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is uh, the lead author of the New York Times 1619 Project, she wrote an 8,000 word essay in the New York Times Magazine called What We Are Owed. And it's this treatise on basically that black people can't be successful unless the government you know, creates a, like a $15 trillion reparations program where government money just kind of falls from the sky into the hands of black people because inherently you're a victim. But what's interesting um, about it is that in it, she says, there is nothing a black person can do. Doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you save. None of those things can make up for 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. So you just think about, just, you think about that for a moment and well, first of all, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and this is good for her, she's done all of those things in her life, right? To lead a quite prosperous existence and good for her. And, but yet if, if teachers adopt this message that the system is so rigged against you, it's so discriminatory, it's so just onerous that 
how, what other expectation could you expect other than to feel that you're, that you're helpless? And, that, and there's actually a psychological definition called learned helplessness, where I fear that, that many, many kids are falling into that trap. But think about the impact that must have on, say, say for example, you're a, a mum trying to get your kid to learn to do the right thing, to learn how to behave, to learn how to do their schoolwork. I mean, it's gratuitously insulting to, to you as a parent if someone comes along and says none of that matters. Um, it, it, right. it, it, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's helping to, you know, um, demotivate African-Americans. It's just the very opposite of what we should be saying, surely. Well, what's interesting is not only it devotes African-Americans, it, devo it, demo it um, diminishes motivation even of white students, right? Because if, if your framework is based on your skin color, you're inherently oppressed, or based on your skin color, you're inherently an oppressor. Both of those, you're locked into a, a certain role that I guess that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the that is one of the, the fundamental challenges and why schools, and, and we can talk about the other institutions, um, are so important. I mean, there is a there's an incredible uh, charter school network called KIPP, the KIPP College Network. Um, and for 20 plus years, KIPP represented the gold standard in charter schooling as an alternative to parents just like the ones that you're describing who are desperate for a high quality education. And one of KIPP's uh, main slogans for many years was work hard, be nice. Work hard, be nice. With the message being that your effort matters and your character matters, right? No matter what your situation is, that's, that's something within your toolkit that you can always deploy. Well, right after the George Floyd murders, uh, murder, um, Kip said, you know what? We're abandoning that slogan. We're no longer gonna say work hard, be nice. And the reason that we're doing it is because quote, meritocracy is an illusion, end quote. And again, think about the message that you're sending the kids. The one thing you have is the belief that my effort matters and that my character matters. And if I work hard, that's gotta be at least part of the equation. And so when schools start sending this message that these things don't matter or they don't matter as much, it's very debilitating to kids. It's also a very pre-modern message. I mean, the United States was founded on this idea that everyone is in possession of their own rights. And, and before then, in most societies, your status was defined by your immutable characteristics by right. what you were born or uh, America was a revolutionary idea because here came along a society where, where you weren't defined by your immutable characteristics. And what, what I find bizarre is so-called progressives are uh, inviting people to return to a pre-modern idea that you're born what you are rather than being the author of your own destiny. It's a, it's a profoundly depressing and, and backward step. It's, uh, it, it is mind-boggling, and, and it's mind-boggling the velocity at which this mindset has been adopted. Like, you're no longer simply an individual with dignity and human rights, with this whole idea of common humanity. Suddenly now, for some people, if you look at a kid, well, that kid is just a traumatized avatar of some identity group. They, they no longer hold individual characteristics which can make them succeed or frankly hold them accountable for decisions that they may have made. 
And I think we need to get back to that. There, there's, there's room for us to understand group politics and it's interesting data, but at the end of the day, every kid in our school is a kid in our school. They're an individual with all sorts of individual complexities that define their assets, their areas of growth. And again, this is why I launched schools. I mean, I want kids to know they can do hard things, even in the face of life's inevitable barriers. Now, here in Mississippi, we've only got seven charter schools in the entire state, rather disgracefully, I might say. Why is it, do you think, that charter schools are so much better at inculcating these values than non-charter schools? What is it about them? Yeah, so it's good. So, you know, first, let me say, as a charter school leader, I will say right from the bat, not every charter school is great, as well as not every traditional district school is bad, right? So let, let's, just, let's just establish that from the beginning. That said, most charter school leaders who, who develop an idea, they have typically really assessed the academic needs within a given community. You know, they'll come to the South Bronx and say, whoa, I'm in a district where only 2% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college. Maybe this is an area that really needs strong high schools. Or they may have assessed that they have a really strong arts program or STEM program. So usually the people coming up with an idea for a charter school are trying to fill a very real need that exists within a local community. And typically because of the apparatus of most state authorization um, systems, there's a high level of accountability. I mean, in a traditional district school, you could be operating for generations only producing 2% of kids not graduating from high school ready for college. But in a charter environment, within a couple of years, if you're not delivering, you will be sanctioned, closed, some action will be taken against you. So there's a built-in mechanism within charter schools that in my view, dramatically improves the likelihood that those charter schools will be better. If you look at most macro data, some people say that the net result of uh, charter schools is not significantly higher. And I would agree with that actually than traditional district schools. However, if you look at um, certain charter schools, I mean, because of their best practices, there is much to learn from, um, from what some charter schools are doing across the country. And rather than to be hostile towards these things, we should be embracing what is it that makes them so special. And you've, you've also um, written a book, Agency. And um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you say in your book. You're, you're trying to, in, in effect, take on this the zeitgeist of our of our age. Yes. You are you're saying you're saying some quite controversial things. You're saying that the precise opposite of what popular culture tries to to, to yeah. do. You're saying that people have agency. Tell us right. a little bit about the book and and what inspired you to write it. Sure. I mean, what's funny when you say. Uh, some of the books, some of the topics are controversial. It is, you know, it's interesting. I, I think we're living in a time where it does take courage to say obvious things, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? So it's a weird that saying something like agency that you have free will is, is controversial or that you should be treated as an individual. But it is true, I, you know, after working for many years running schools before that at MTV and, and at the Gates Foundation, I, you know, I've had the privilege of being in institutions that are dedicated to reaching kids in some way, some authentic way, either raising money to improve their academic outcomes or entertaining them or educating them. And so I think I've gotten a sense of what are the factors that really drive 
whether or not young people are leading flourishing lives. And what I've noticed, again, with astonishing speed in the last few years is these two meta narratives that I think are really diminishing a kid's sense of agency. The first is what we briefly talked about, what I call the blame the system meta narrative. In that meta narrative, you know, if you're not achieving the American dream, it's because America itself is inherently an oppressive nation based on your race, your gender, some other immutable characteristic, you're screwed. You know, you're, you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. You're locked into a certain role. There's a, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. And these systems are so rigged, so discriminatory that you as an individual, you, you basically are powerless to do anything. And of course that robs you of agency in the sense that you can lead a self-determined life. But on the other side, I also think there's another narrative that I call blame the victim. And that narrative, it's not America that's the problem. America's great. America is the land of opportunity. If you're not successful, it's because it's your fault. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Somehow you're the architect of your own failure. And of course, that narrative is problematic because it ignores the reality of a kid that maybe is born in the South Bronx or Appalachia, or, you know, that they're not born into a strong family, don't have a strong faith commitment, haven't had access to school choice. So for kids like that, it's really hard to just suddenly um, capitalize on the American dream. And so these two narratives of blame the system and blame the victim, I think, add up to a singular lie that robs young people of this idea that they can lead a self-determined life. So agency is, I put forth my book as what I hope to become the empowering alternative to these two narratives, where I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So if you think of agency like, you know, like a vector or velocity, velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction, right? So if, if each one of us has free will, the question is, how do we know, how do we become morally discerning? What, what helps us know right from wrong? And for me, that is the, the crucial element that helps young people develop the sense of agency. You have to have, you have to embrace what I call these four pillars that I call free, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. And I'm happy to go through each one, but this is a framework that I think if more young people embrace these pillars, we'd, we'd usher in an age of agency where I think more young people would not feel that they're at the mercy of some nameless, faceless American bureaucracy, or feel that they're the only ones that, um, you know, they have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. So you think differences in outcome are not due to um, failure within the system, but having a strong family, having a strong faith, having exposure to entrepreneurship and a good education, that, that's, that's, that gives you one heck of a head start. But, you know, nothing is guaranteed in life. You know, this is a hard lesson. I mean, so, so yes, there, for example, there are disparities, right? There are differences in outcomes, and you can even say differences in outcomes by group. I have two children in my own home with my wife. 
my two children are different. That my, my two children who are, you know, being raised by the same two parents in the same household with, you know, same values, they're gonna have different outcomes, right? Why would we think entire systems will have equal outcomes at the end, right? It's just, it's not a realistic um, set of expectations. So we can have a discussion about why disparities exist, but we cannot be what I call monocausal in developing theory. So if you see differences between black and white kids, for example, in reading outcomes, there are a whole bunch of factors that have explained why there's been a gap for 30 plus years. But what's interesting, if you look at the National Assessment for Educational Progress, in the entire 30 plus years that that assessment, the nation's report card has been given, there has never been a situation since the early 90s that a majority of white students are reading at grade level. I think it's some, only something like 45%. It's unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that white students are not reading at grade level, right? So what are the other factors such as decline in family structure, lack of access to school choice, lack of content rich curricula? So we need to take our blinders off this idea that it must be based on race or it must be based on class or it must be based on gender as the reason that disparities exist. And we just need to be honest about all the factors that really drive whether or not kids are succeeding. Can you elaborate a little bit of, about the four pillars and, and in terms of public policy, what we can do um, to strengthen each one? Yeah, well, the one thing that I have to say that may not be satisfying is that not all of these can be solved by public policy. There is a, there is a limit on how much legislation can do, right? Because the, they're both policy levers, but they're also just cultural levers. And we have to have the courage to talk about these things like non-marital birth rates that are really exploding still Maybe there's some things that you can do from a policy perspective, but we need a new awakening for how young people make these decisions about family formation. So for example, you know, free family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. So the first step is about family, not the family that you're from. It's about the family that you form. So if you're a young person, I think it's very important that you learn about this series of decisions often called the success sequence that says, if you finish just your high school degree, get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if you have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. Now, it's not 100%, there's no guarantee. But I, I've often heard the so-called success sequence, and I, I have a sort of slightly subversive counterintuitive thought. Mm -hmm. Might it not be a case of self-selection? Yes. It, it, the kind of person who does those three things is the kind of person who's going to be pretty successful anyway. Well, how does one become the kind of person that does those things? Yeah. This, this, is, this is the essence of the point, right? Which is a young person, in my view, doesn't just come up with these ideas on their own. They need there's, there's, a, there's a level of character and moral formation. And I've written this book for 24 and unders, you know, for the, essentially for the people who work with young people 24 and under who are about to make these decisions as they enter young adulthood. So it might be that there is a kid who, who isn't predisposed just to you know, finish their education, get a job, get married and have kids. But the whole point is, Let's make sure we at least teach kids these things so that when they are at the moment 
of making decisions themselves, they at least know, wow, you know what? There are likely rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. At the end of the day, it's up to the young person to make the decisions. I was in um, New Orleans a couple of years ago doing research on great high schools. We visited a ninth grade uh, classroom in a part of New Orleans, extremely low income uh, community, um, very racially diverse. So I, I um, visited a classroom of all ninth graders. And I said to these ninth graders, if you knew that there were a series of decisions in your control that for many people like you who followed that, those series of decisions, 97% avoided poverty, you know, would you wanna know that? And they looked at me and they said, well, of course, you know, of course I wanna know that. And I said, well, there's some grownups that think maybe I shouldn't tell you because maybe you're not the right kind of people to make these decisions or maybe somehow you'll be offended or somehow you'll be insulted. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They said, what are you talking about? Tell us, tell us. And it was just really interesting. So we then proceeded to have a discussion about this thing called the success sequence. And at the end of it, you know, we talked about different probabilities. We said, well, this series of decisions, 97% of people avoid poverty, take it in different order. This, you have a much higher level of likelihood of poverty. And at the end of it, it wasn't as if I told them you must do this, but I felt that they felt that they had been respected as future decision makers in their own lives. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do with education. You know, that's agency. That's agency, you know, so, and that's all, and that's all related just to family. But I think it's a fundamental one because, you know, the non-marital birth rate in the year 2020 to women 24 and under, for women 24 and under who had a child in the year 2020, 72% of those births were outside of marriage, 72%. In the, black, in the white community, it was 62%. And in the black community, it was 92%. This is what I call an equal opportunity tsunami. And it doesn't mean that in every instance of what we're talking about, every one of those kids is going to be unsuccessful. But believe me, the correlation with poverty, poor outcomes in a whole range of areas. And so if young people are making these kinds of decisions, I think it's incumbent we give them a new framework. We give them a new way to think about the decisions that they're going to make in their own lives. And then briefly, you've been very generous with your time, but briefly, some of the other pillars, faith, yes. um, education, and um, entrepreneurship. entrepreneurship. Yeah, so the R is for religion. And, you know, some people have pushed back. I mean, you know, it's like it's one, it's one third rail to talk about family, then throw in religion, then, <laughs> then you're, you're really controversial. But the data, even though religiosity is, is going down, particularly amongst young people, um, the data shows that when young people do have a personal faith commitment in their own lives, lower levels of loneliness, lower levels of depression, more real world engagement with real people, stronger marriages, just the, the data is just overwhelming. So I feel it's incumbent for us to teach young people. And this is not to say you must be Christian or you must be Buddhist, or it's just this idea, recognize that the value of a personal faith commitment puts you in a, in a community that likely loves you, that cares for you, that is just there for you in moments that people who are not part of these communities are often succumbing to all sorts of other things like, you know, social media and the number of, you know, sort of 
false friends that they have or even more like woke religion like the anti-racism and these other things so there's a whole section in the book on how faith can make a difference as well as to encourage faith-based organizations to run more schools because i think there's an opportunity there e for education is all about school choice i mean school choice exists for people who live in middle and upper class communities across the country but when it comes to the lowest um income income populations across race you'll often find the schools that they're you know, uh, designed or sort of sentenced to go to are some of the worst performing schools in the country. And we don't give the, mo the most vulnerable the biggest um, benefit, which is the, the ability to choose schools. And then the last E for entrepreneurship, if you've formed a strong family, if you have a strong faith commitment, if you have strong access to a high quality education, you're now in a position to be more of what I call an informed risk taker that entrepreneurship usually means being starting your own business and it should include that, includes work, but it just means that you have the ability now to take control of your life. Because in some ways you've built the foundation, you've built your fallback plan between family, religion, and education. You know, when I, I went to Harvard Business School, right? And I went to work for Teach for America, a nonprofit organization years ago, and people thought I was crazy, but you know, it's like, I came from a strong family, I know who I am and, and I can always go get a real job. And maybe that's, you know, in my instance, that's sort of an extreme example. But the point is these four pillars, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, where again, family is not where you're from, it's the family that you form, gives you the kind of foundation where you now have choices in your own life. And that's what I want for all young people to really experience. And it's been a very uplifting message. Um, and uh, thank you very much for taking the time and for sharing it with us. And, this is great. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. And I wish you every success. Is the, is the book selling well? The book is selling well. It was the number one category in new releases in, I mean, number one in new releases in several Amazon categories. No, you know, I think that there is a yearning for a message of hope and agency over grievance and dependency. And it's the latter that I think has just been pushed down people's throat, particularly over the last few years. And we need something which is just more empowering and that I, something I can, I can do versus being told what I cannot do. I, I think your book will very much um, redefine the, the spirit of the time. I think it's, the timing is perfect. I think it's exactly, what, it's exactly what I think America needs. So well done and thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian.